This is the Know Yourself Performance Podcast with me, Conor O'Neill, where we help everyday athletes improve body composition and performance through optimizing their nutrition, training, and psychology. Find out more by going to knowyourselfperformance.com. How are Michael Jordan's ankles, your car's suspension system, and jumping off wooden boxes related to each other? The answer is found in the plyometrics section found on most decent strength conditioning programs. If you want to jump higher, sprint faster, and generally produce more power, which is defined as force in a given time in athletic endeavors, it makes sense to have practiced and honed this ability in training. Plyometrics can play a key role here, but they are often misunderstood, loosely defined, poorly programmed, and carried out in a subpar standard. But when planned and implemented correctly, they provide an opportunity for you to exercise previously unavailable adaptations and performance enhancements. Yuri Verkashansky was a Russian track and field coach who implemented various revolutionary approaches with his athletes. For example, he was one of the first coaches to consider strength training to be an important part of a runner's training program. But his most well-known contribution was the shock method. This involved using exercises like the depth jump and repeated hurdle jumps to create dynamic contact with the ground from which his athletes would have to rebound as quickly as possible. Olympic runner and coach Fred Wilt observed these obscure looking training protocols and the success of Verkashansky's athletes and coined the term plyometrics. This type of training was popularized further by coaches like Michael Yesis, who has written many books on the topic. I include these names to direct you towards avenues for further reading if you're interested. So since the birth of the shock method and the subsequent naming and popularization of plyometrics, the definition of what constitutes plyometric training has been debated. In keeping with Verkshansky's original shock method, true plyometric training requires the presence of a reactive component, whereby there's a rapid eccentric drop immediately before any jumps or explosive movements, and where ground contact time is minimized. Think of a depth jump as the clearest example of this. Many programs will include exercises like box jumps and broad jumps in the plyometrics section. While there can be a rapid eccentric component to these exercises, for example, throwing your arms down and loading the lower body joints quickly before jumping, these exercises don't involve the impact element that a depth jump, for example, does. For this reason, some prefer to label these exercises as jump training as opposed to plyometrics. Others see plyometrics as a broad category that includes the shock method as well as the other exercises just mentioned as subsections of plyometrics. In terms of how plyometrics work, we need to look at the stretch shortening cycle. So think of what happens when you drive over a speed bump too quickly. You hit the speed bump, forcefully compressing the springs in the car's suspension system. The springs react by expanding and the car bounces upward as a result. All of this happens in a split second. In the same way, when you drop from a height and your foot hits the ground, the muscles and tendons in your lower body forcefully stretch, causing them to subsequently automatically contract in the opposite direction. This is part of what's known as the stretch shortening cycle. This is a reactive component that differentiates plyometrics and produces the purported benefits. Stretch shortening cycle can be broken down into three stages. The eccentric phase is where you first make contact with the ground after a drop or a run up, for example. Here, the muscles and tendons are forced to stretch, 
thereby building up tension and stored energy like the suspension springs. The second phase is known as the amortization or transition phase. Here, signals are sent from tendons and muscle spindles, that's the cells in the muscle that detect changes in muscle length, towards the central nervous system to indicate that there has been a stretch beyond the usual in the muscles and tendons. You can think of this as similar to the signals that would be sent to the central nervous system if you were to touch a hot stove, indicating that immediate reflexive action is required. In the case of the hot stove, the reflexive action is to remove your hand. This happens without you even thinking about it. In the case of a depth jump, for example, this reflexive action is the contraction of fast twitch muscle fibers contributing to phase three, and this is known as the myotatic reflex. The third phase is the concentric phase. This is where the muscles forcefully contract, assisted by a combination of the stored energy built up from the stretching of the muscles and tendons and the reflexive signal from the central nervous system. This reflexive signal calls more high threshold motor units into action. These are motor units that are rarely used in everyday life, but which are essential to maximal force output. Plyometrics allows to train these motor units, potentially allowing for increased access to and better functioning of them in a sporting context when they're needed. This stretch shortening cycle has the effect that you're able to produce more force in less time, that is, more power, than you normally would. This becomes obvious with an example. Imagine you were asked to attempt to dunk a basketball. Would you stand under the rim and try to vertically jump up, or would you take a run up? Of course, you take the run-up. The run-up means that that final step before jumping will involve a forceful stretch and contraction of the lower body muscles and tendons, allowing you to jump higher. You might not have previously known that that's why you choose the run-up, but you should now. So using plyometrics also has the potential for what's known as a potentiating effect. Potentiation, in this case, means that performing a plyometric exercise can allow you to produce greater forces in exercises that come afterwards. For example, doing laying medicine ball chest throws before a bench press can help you bench press more weight. This is thought to be due to the extra high threshold motor units recruited as a result of the plyometric exercises remaining active and available for use during that subsequent exercise. Interestingly, this can also work the other way around, where performing a heavy strength exercise can improve your performance in subsequent plyometric exercises. For example, doing a set of squats can improve your ability to jump high afterwards. You can use this knowledge to prioritize whichever aspect you are hoping to improve more. So if strength improvement is your goal, performing a plyometric exercise first could allow you to lift more weight and progress further over time. If improving the explosive component of power output is your main goal, then performing a strength exercise before your jumps could be useful. This concept has led to the development of contrast training, which I will cover in future episodes. So over time, the effect of performing these plyometrics is that power output improves. There are many potential reasons for this. There is clearly the skill acquisition element, whereby you get better at what you practice. In this case, if you jump more, you're going to improve your ability to organize your body and jump better. But there are also the muscular and neurological adaptations. Routinely exposing the muscles to increased forces, as with strength training or any other type of training, for example, is likely to create a hypercompensation effect where the body prepares for upcoming exposures to those types of forces by increasing the muscle and tendon's ability to withstand what's being asked of it. 
There's also the potential that routinely tapping into those increased numbers of high threshold motor units will allow for the enhancement and voluntary use of these muscles in future. But whatever the mechanism, the increase in power seen as a result of consistent plyometric work can have huge carryover to athleticism, not only to those interested in, in improving top end speed, acceleration and jumping ability, but also those who are going for longer distance where incremental improvements of force output per step can lead to improved performance even in endurance events. So due to the high force outputs and neural demand associated with plyometrics, there is some injury risk associated with them if not programmed and performed appropriately as there is with all exercises. With that said, if your sport or goals demand that you produce high forces through jumping, landing, sprinting, turning, then you may be increasing your injury risk by not including some of these elements within your training. But in the same way that you wouldn't load up a barbell as heavily as possible on your first time learning the squat, diving straight into the most intense plyometric exercises isn't a recommended approach. Instead, introducing lower intensity, higher repetition variations will allow you to acquire the body awareness, skills, and muscles slash tendon strength to begin introducing more intense variations down the line. These lower intensity variations, sometimes referred to as extensive plyometrics, could include exercises like pogo hops, skipping variations, and bounds for anywhere from 20 to 40 reps. Over a period of weeks and months, you can start to introduce higher intensity variations, sometimes referred to as extensive plyometrics. These can include exercises like hurdle jumps, box jumps, and eventually more intense exercises like depth jumps. With this increase in intensity, you should reduce the volume, the number of reps that you're doing to avoid excessive fatigue. Towards the more intense end, your sets could be as low as one to five reps. As you advance, there's no need to completely remove the higher volume, lower intensity plyometric variations. These can become a tool for continuing to develop your general physical preparation of the joints and muscles with low fatigue. You can include them as part of a warm up, for example. Whilst the benefits of implementing a general plyometric approach will likely carry over to most athletic endeavors, as your training becomes more advanced, it may be worth considering the specific demands of your sport or athletic goals. This might include assessing whether a sport demands low or high intensity efforts of power output. For example, a long jumper is going to have a low number of maximally intense jumps to complete competition, whereas a basketball player will have many sub-maximal jumps to complete throughout the game. This should be reflected in how they include plyometrics within their training. Other aspects include whether you're likely to be jumping off one foot, two foot, or a mixture, as well as what planes you are likely to be moving in. For example, are you always moving forward in a straight line or will you be twisting and turning? Finally, with all of this said, it is critical to remember that plyometrics should only make up one element of your overall training program. Most sports and athletic goals will comprise of a combination of strength, endurance, speed, body composition, movement capacity, and power. And so your training should contain elements of each based on your goals and your current limitations. Thanks for listening. Go to knowyourselfperformance.com to find out more.